Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode is an absolute treat as Jay Blakeson spoke to fellow director Jessica Hobbs about his dark comedy drama, I Care A Lot. In a fascinating discussion, Jay spoke to Jess about creating unsympathetic characters, directing incredible performers and mastering his shooting schedule. We hope you enjoy. I just wanted to say a huge thank you to Jay for doing this. Um, I know it will mean a lot to the people who are watching and listening. It's really fantastic to hear from a fellow director, particularly having just watched your film. Um, Jay's background, uh, I'm I'm sure you're all aware, but uh, I believe your first feature was The Disappearance of Alice Creed, which you wrote and directed. Then you did The Fifth Wave. And then uh, I Care A Lot, which you also wrote and directed. and just to give a little bit of background to him, as I understand, you did a BA in film and literature, I think, at the University of Warwick. Uh, and also, I just managed to see online that you're one of the 10 directors to watch in Variety. And uh, That's what that thing is up there. Yeah, oh, very nice. <laughs> Congratulations. And obviously doing well. So, look, welcome. Thanks for coming. Um, it's really just a huge congratulations on the film. I Thank loved... The outrageousness of it. I love the irreverence of it. I thought the casting was superb. And a huge congratulations to Rosamond Pike and to you for her Golden Globe nomination, which is yeah. really brilliant. Um, as a long lifetime fan of Diane Weist, I was just so excited to see her in there. Um, and Aza Gonzalez, and please correct me if I'm mispronouncing anybody, and, sure. and the really always superb Peter Dinklage. So I wondered if perhaps we could start um, even with talking about, I'm going to jump in a bit, just as to how you attached cast, because this is something you, you'd written and then put out. I think it was Black Bear that you went, was the production company. Yeah. And like, you've been working with them on another production and then you showed them the script. Is that right? Um, well, I almost worked with Black Bear some years ago because I was I was originally attached to The Imitation Game when it was at right. Warner Brothers. And um, then I... I sort of left that project um, and then it got set up at Black Bear. But I had a conversation with Black Bear about that project. Nice. Um, and then they went off um, and they made it like a different version of it than I wanted to make, which is sort of, I guess, creative differences led to me sort of not doing that anymore. Um, but I'd, I'd always got on with Teddy, who is like the principal there. Um, and we stayed in touch and I liked the kind of films he made. And the great thing about Black Bear is they're a producer financier. So it's like a one-stop shop. So it's not like you're going to a producer and then looking around for money. Um, they, you know, they, well, I don't know if they do this on everything, but something this one, they were the people that would be providing the access to the money as well as producing the film with me. So after working for a studio where you have this like massive hierarchy of executives all the way up to the top of the studio, just to go and work with somebody like who's basically one person you can then sort of talk to and get an answer from seemed very seductive and I got on well with Teddy and he really got the movie. He really loved the script. So I wrote it on spec. Um, and then I, uh, cause I'm, I don't love working in development. I don't think anybody <laughs> loves development. Everybody likes making things, but not developing them. Um, so I, I sent him the script. I was like, hey, there's a very small pool of sort of producer finances that we sent the script to. And he was one of them. And he just really responded very quickly and loved it. And after a very sort of enthusiastic conversation, we decided that, you know, we should we should try and make it together. And you know, he what w- he wanted to hear about what I wanted to do with the film, and he obviously wanted to hear wanted to hear like the names of the kind of people I wanted to cast in it because they always do. Um, and Rosamond was on that list. Um, but as I say, there's always a process to these things, and you know, yeah. you, you don't always go to the 
first person first who ends up making your film and I think there's there's always this sort of like myth that like the people who end up in the film are often like the first people to be approached but I think like especially in the case on this film like the people who got in the film are absolutely perfect for the film yeah. um and so you know you often like fate has a way of intervening and what happened with this one is we were obviously we needed to get the, the role of Marla first because she's the the linchpin role and then we can sort of form an ensemble around around her and what happened was that because I'm with CAA and Rosamond's with CAA that her agent read it without us offering it to Rosamond he, he read it and really loved it and kind of a bit naughtily snuck it to Rosamond um, and she read it and she really loved it and she sent me a letter saying how much she loved it which is a Never happens, right? But like an actor who's on your list reads it without reads it without being offered it, and then sends a letter to you saying, um, you know, that they they really like to do it. And so I met Rosamond, and but we were in the middle of a bit of a process. Like the script was like elsewhere with an offer elsewhere at the time. I don't think right. it's talking too far out of school to say that. But I'm so glad that that it didn't. So it all kind of worked out that like I, you know, I've loved Rosamond's work for such a long long time. Um, you know, she she's just so good in everything is so different and everything. So if you like, think of her in Gone Girl or in Education and then Hostiles or like Barney's version or, yep. you know, Pride and Prejudice, she's so different in all of them and so good in all of them that, you know, it sort of felt like kismet that she was like attracted to this thing. And I think once we got her on board and she had a block of availability, it was sort of perfect for when we wanted to go, which again is like, it's rare that the person that you want to do it has a block of availability and wants to do it next. Often you get a situation I've had this before, you have... A project that an actor really likes and an actor can get that movie made for you um yeah. you know sort of financially but they've got like another one that's going to go and you're sort of in a queue waiting and often you, that queue like people sort of sneak in the queue ahead of you and then then the project never gets made and that's happened to me before yeah. so with with this one she was like no i want to do this i want to do it next and i was like brilliant i want to do this next so we both basically held ourselves available for it all to come together um she had an out point because she went she went off to make um wheel of time for for Amazon. So we had to let her go for that. So we were basically backing up into that date and then finding availability of other cast around that. And so after we after we cast um Rosamond, it was then we uh we hired some casting directors after that. Because you know you can go to offers without having a casting director on board. Yeah. So we uh we hired some Jeannie and Rory who are really good casting directors and they uh they're they're sort of based in both LA and New York and we knew we were shooting in Boston. So having kind of both co- both coasts of we can bring big bigger names in but then cast some other people who are in the new york sort of east coast scene yeah. um and then to really fill out this this ensemble and for for me it's like i just really want to work with good actors i don't really have a preconceived idea of who it should be um i just want to work with the best actors and then you get like an instinctive feel well, for, interesting you say that for, as a writer director because as a i often wonder some writers write with certain people in their heads and and some don't do you write with people in do you see did you win on oh. this, any of them right no, I, I didn't I, I really didn't and like Rosamond I think sort of didn't believe me when I said that she goes well am I the person you got in your head and I was like well I haven't got anybody in my head she goes you must have somebody I was like got Marla in my head I've got yeah you know oh, the way sometimes I do it I don't do this anymore I used to do this was I used to imagine sort of like old movie stars, like dead movie stars who I can't have. So I like write something for Robert Ryan in my head, you know? <laughs> uh, because like if you write it for somebody who's famous now, you automatically sort of write in their voice. Yeah. You can't help it. Like if you, I don't know, off the top of my head, if you're trying to write something for George Clooney, you're automatically writing it as George Clooney. Yeah. And then you try and cast somebody else. You try and cast Peter, for example. Yeah. He's a very different actor and yeah. with very different voice, very different instincts. 
um, both both great actors, both you know, be lucky to work with either of them, and I have been very lucky to work with Peter now. But um, I don't I don't really write with anybody in mind. Um, I don't really I, picture it that way. That's really wonderful, and 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 in a way, I think it gave this particular film such an energy and a freshness because it it felt like each of the actors very much made it their own, but there was such a particularity to the voice of the characters that you already had as a writer, which I really commend you on. I wanted to ask you, I was reading through your Twitter and I noticed that you put up a New York Times haiku, don't look for any sympathetic characters in Jay Blakeson. <laughs> Not a comment I'm going to agree with, but I'm really curious. I love the fact that you put it up there. Yeah. And, and I kind of thought, is, he, you know, is it like a badge of honour? But I wanted, wondered if you could talk about that a little bit, particularly in regards to this film. Yeah, well, that, that haiku didn't like point out that they meant my movies. It just like sounded like they were talking about me. <laughs> uh, I found funny but um, I think the, I do like sympathetic characters but I'd like characters to be human I'm not a big believer in sort of having a, a pure villain and a pure hero yeah. because I think the problem with kind of where we are in the world right now is that people are looking for heroes and villains like all sort of journalistic pieces that should be sort of saying how complicated things are are always looking for heroes and villains and and that that simplifies things into a way that the world isn't simple. So, I um, I always like to come from like the idea that the you know, which is what I believe is like there's no like she says at the beginning there's no such thing as good people, but I just, you know, there's no such thing as bad people. There's just people. They do some sometimes they do good things, sometimes they do bad things. Sometimes bad people can be annoyingly good, and you yeah. have to sort of respect them. You know, sometimes somebody who you hate their point of view on Twitter all the time. They might say something that you really agree with now and again. You got, you know, it's sort of as equally as troubling yeah. as when like somebody you really respect does something awful. And that happens quite a lot nowadays too. So um, I like this sort of like grubby humanity. And, you know, even in, even in the Disappearance of Alice Creed, there's like, there was no real good guy to root for. Like Absolutely. even Alice was complicated, right? And, yeah. You know, she she was obviously a victim of the situation. She didn't ask for it, but she was thrown into this thing, and she's but she's still trying to get the best out of it. She's not just trying to get out. So well, her behaviour um, is interesting, and in as a result of what's happening to her, because it makes you as a viewer think, "What would I do?" It wasn't I, I like the complexity, the kind of what I would call like a moral queasiness that you like to sit in. That's great, and there's a real. I have to, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody else, or I hope everybody else watching it had the same, but there's such a truthfulness to these performances, even though the tone is heightened mm. and ironic and funny and sharp, there's still a real truthfulness. There's these moments where, you know, when you see him seeing his mother and he can't get to her, or when you see her with Fran, there's just little moments that really leak out. All of the performances are truthful throughout, but you've got these really beautiful little turning point moments where we just you really play with our empathy for these characters who are doing perhaps reprehensible things and i i really yeah. commend that it's great well i mean that's why the character of fran was important that you need to see that she is human she doesn't it's not that she doesn't actually care about people but she only cares about her inner circle and there's a there's a thing i sort of it's about the american dream which is like you will do all you can and trample over whoever you can to get what you want and then you will keep those in your close family or in your close circle. You know, you'll care for them. You'll keep them safe. But everybody else is sort of fair game. Um, and so that's what... I like talking about the previous president. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, there, and there, was, there was a lot of that in there with, like, him, yeah. you know, with Peter's character and Messina and that sort of attitude. of, And also with Marla, it's like, there is this sort of worship of success. And there is, yeah. there's an admiration of success that 
once you have success, it doesn't really, it sort of washes clean how you got there. You know, like you know, you're now successful in parts of the establishment, but the the things that you did, the terrible things that you did to get there sort of get forgotten and people don't really dig into them and really care about them. And so it was, I didn't want to make her a monster, make any of the monsters. They all had to have, have like a humanity to them. And it's not that it was a weakness or, and I didn't really care if you like sympathize for her, empathize for her or what liked her. That, that's not, you know, as long as you were fascinated and yeah. by her and were sort of enjoying watching her, which hopefully, and you know, because it's Rosamund doing such an amazing job that you are and all the actors doing an amazing job that you're always hopefully interested in what, what they're going to do next. But, you know, just adding a adding some, it's not making it simple. It's simple to sort of like put up a monster and hate the monster, but it's hard if that monster is a bit like somebody you'd know. I mean, we would we would often talk about how if you met Marla at a party, you know, you'd really like her. She's sort of like got a nice smile. She's well put together, sort of classy, stylish, got a, you know, seems to have a great loving relationship and, you know, great taste in like art and architecture and her office is lovely. And and then, you know, you'd say to her, well, what do you do for a living? She goes, well, I take care of the elderly. And you're like, you're you're lovely. You know what I mean? It's so it's, it's like you don't see what's under the hood of people sometimes. And obviously in this film, you're seeing behind the veil of of what she's really doing. But the people like the judge um, and people that you meet in the everyday life and even maybe some of like her co-workers don't know exactly the extent of what she's doing and how terrible she's behaving. And so she's allowed to get away with it because she seems to be a productive, efficient, ambitious member of society. You know, It's really interesting because I... Um... Watching it, I, I felt I felt that you'd really grasp as as someone who's not American a view on American society in terms of that success culture, that wealth, that power, wealth more than anything. Mm. And it's not that we don't have that here, but it's very specific to the states. I I, I feel whenever I go there or, or even engage and work there, there's a kind of there's a level of it which is quite overwhelming initially. Did you feel that being an outsider really kind of gave you a, an eye into that? Um, well, I think so. It's hard to say because I've never been an insider to it, so I don't know if my view of it's any better than being an insider. <laughs> um, I think definitely with just sort of like a here there's a sort of like an assumption that there will be sort of like a welfare state that will help you. There will be a safety net. There will be like the NHS, for example, you know, that we have a level of like socialised sort of like medicine and welfare that not not you know there's it's something there's an argument about it all the time but in america there's just not that at all there's no safety net for anybody it's all based around business and you know there's no sort of like vulnerable you know in this country we feel like if there's a vulnerable person if we're not trying to take care of them we're sort of failing them and it's sort of a bit sinister whereas in america it seems like every time there's a vulnerable person there's a whole industry that's formed around them uh, to to profit and I mean and it's and unfortunately it's getting that way over here as well you know as we have been seeing recently over the past year and like the, the crisis we've been having that there's a lots of people who've had opportunity through a crisis and through other people's vulnerability to make a lot of money and make a lot of money for their friends and that's exactly what Marla's doing she's seeing this opportunity to um, use the, somebody else's vulnerability and problem to to benefit herself and benefit benefit those around her and so for me that has always felt you know you use the word queasy you know that that does make me feel queasy but I can but it seems to fit right into the exact same thing we admire about America you know that you know that you know in just for example you know I went and made a film for a studio in America whereas like you know I'd made a I made the Dismount of Valley's Creed which cost 750,000 pounds to make and then 
like in a, the next contract I signed was a film that never got made, but like the next contract I signed was for a Warner Brothers film, which would have been like a $200 million movie if it got made. And in America, it's just like, you can do it. We believe in you. You're successful. You've got the momentum, which we don't have so much over here. Over here, it's like more of a ladder of success. Like probably would have been able to make like a two million pound film over here, and then maybe a five million pound film. I'd have, I'd have just like worked my way up. In America, it's like, no, you're the guy, you can do it. And there's a that belief in yeah. spotting talent and investing in talent and and you know obviously sometimes that doesn't pay off and you can get chewed up in the machine and that sort of happened to me as well but you but there's you, there's that's sort of bewitching you know what I mean but that yeah. is exactly the same kind of thing that Marla's doing it's yeah. like you know, that's what they're looking for they're looking for opportunity and looking for this sort of ambition and drive and that the often truth. does come yeah that does come with like a ruthlessness and like yeah. a, an amorality that you have to do to be successful and um, I find it, I find it all sort of scary but fascinating. I think as an outsider, I just sort of, the, I just sort of notice the things that Americans maybe take for granted. So they grew up with like insurance, but then like you know, I went to America and worked under a DGA contract, so I got DGA health insurance and getting all these, getting all these you know, pieces of paper and looking at them and like I don't understand how any of this works. It just kind of feels like a scam. It feels just Kafkaesque, and people are like, oh no, that's just the way it is. It's like, but. But why? You know, it was like because profit, you know. So um, so it was, I think all that sort of confusion of like of me being confused and other people were like, no, that's just the way it is, gives 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 me a bit of a point of view on it. And also a lot of them, I think English directors go to America and they see they see America because they've seen movies, so they see America first through movies. Yeah. And so when they go and make a movie, everything sort of seems cinematic in a yeah. way that Americans just take it for granted again. It's like you see something like a, a really big sort of parking lot with big cars and you're like, wow, this looks so much like America. And they're like, what? It's like, it's a target. Who cares? You know, like, no, but we can put a light there and we look great. And, and you get excited about things they just don't care about, you know, because they yeah. see it all the time. And it's the same when they come over here, you know, they, like, or, or not just Americans, but somewhere else, if you think of a film like Control, yeah, um, yeah. Anton Corbin, the way he shot Manchester, you kind of think, wow, I didn't know Manchester was so... Beautifully cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought about that when you see um, uh, Jennifer's house for the first time. It's so classically, beautifully American, you know, freestanding on a block, that beautiful... I'm going to come back to palette because I absolutely loved your use of colour throughout the film. Can I ask a little bit about performance direction? Sure. You've got such a kind of interesting and varied cast in there were there differences in the way the actors approached the performance? And did you find yourself as a director adapting to those different ways of working? Or did you kind of stick in your lane and they adjusted to, to you? Um, I mean, I don't really have a specific lane. My lane is normally like being as supportive uh, to the actors as possible and giving as much, giving making them feel like safe enough. Yeah. So they feel free and not pressured in this like one, you know, you know what film sets are like. It's like you spend three hours getting down to this like three minutes that they have to be perfect in. So not making them feel like it's like that all the time that you're just like, gotta get it right right now. Just giving them time to find it. Yeah. Um, but you know, th with this film, we had a very specific tone and, it, yeah. and everybody read the scripts, kind of read it as a different, like people like, oh, it's a great comedy. And somebody else would be like, oh, it's a great thriller. Or it's like, oh, it's, you know, it, it's a love story or something. And I'm like, well, it's kind of all of those things, but none of those things. Um, and especially when you're shooting out of sequence, like one day you can be doing like a sequence where they're trying to break her out of the care home. And it's basically a dumb, a bunch of dumb guys being dumb and it's fun and it's funny. And you've got like stunts with like things flying around. And and then the next day you're shooting like Marla and Fran crying and holding each other in a bathroom. And and if people aren't really paying attention to the script, like the, like the make, makeup touch up people, you know, they're, 
they they're like what what film is this? I just don't understand what it is. And so, I mean, obviously the actors have the whole script, but they're looking to me to ride that line, especially with like the likability and like the drama versus kind of absurdity, the you yeah. know the genre versus left field. It's sort of like, where is that line? And I've for me, it's sort of that like taste test. If I I kind of know where it is, but it's hard to describe it. So they I would push them either side of that line a bit. But generally, with working with actors is we got like very little rehearsal on this, if any rehearsal at all. We like maybe had like one hour with Rosamund and Peter in a room together after a fitting, just wow. to run their lines and talk about it. But we had about maybe like a couple of hours with Asa and Rosamund together um, just to talk about their relationships stuff. But things like Christmas Eena just came in and he had no rehearsal. He just came in and did his scene, you know, that bang, that, that day. He came in to do the, the scene in the office, which was like a nine page scene and like those long takes. And they were great. Like, every take was great. They were just brilliant. But some, you know, if you hire good actors, it's the cliche, you hire great actors and you just kind of stay out of their way. But yeah. I want to make them feel as comfortable as possible. I'm not sort of, I don't like to pressure people into getting like any sort of genuine reactions unless they want that. You know, there's sometimes where people need to get emotional and then you just need to sort of talk to them and get them into their frame of mind. And there was a couple of couple of scenes where that I, I did a bit of that, but most of the time it's just rooting it where it is in the story and talking about what you want and then letting them know what you like. So like in a nine page scene, it's like, well, know that bit where you did that and that line. I really liked it when you really hit that. Can you do that again? But then, yeah. you can, and then like you sort of building a jigsaw of how you, you do it. So you make sure you get the right bits on the right, you know, the right framing. I like to use very tight close-ups a lot. And yeah. so you want to get the really good sort of emotive stuff in the tight close-ups rather than getting it in the, you know, the big wides. Yeah. So and so do you let the actors know the order you're going to shoot in so they can say, you know, there's some beautiful, you've got a lot of three-quarter profiles just behind her, say, in the courtroom. Mm. And do you let them know, look, this at the moment we're wide, then when I'm going in, that's when I'm going to get that moment. So they can kind of prep their, the way they're working through it? Yeah, I tend to start wide and go closer. Or if, like, I'm seeing that somebody's really getting it, it's like, I'll just say to the cinematographer, like, like let's skip forward. <laughs> skip forward to the close-up now and get it before they lose it, you know? Um, yeah. But they, but you know, with Rosamond, she sort of knew where we were going to be, how it's going to be working. We started wider and going closer and closer and closer. Um, and the, the benefit of, I mean, we shot on 6K, shot in the Sony Venice. So, oh, nice. um, so that sometimes meant that we could sort of stay in a shot like this, yeah. but it means we could go this close because we were delivering 4K. So you can, yeah. you can stay a little bit wider and use it as a close up. So if you've got a really great performance and a medium, you can use it as a close, which, you know, if you were shooting sort of, like anamorphic on, you know, on a on a Alexa Mini, let's say, then you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do that because you wouldn't have the wiggle room. But um, I, you know, I I tend to let the unless the actors don't want to know, I tend to be as close to the camera, like not miles away behind behind monitors. I'm like on little tiny monitors as close to the actions as I can be, and I'm letting them know exactly what's going to happen unless they don't want to know. So sometimes they didn't want to know when things are going to happen because they want to be more surprised and a bit more freaked out by it. Um, but sometimes they, you know, they, they want to know everything. I mean, Rosamond is the kind of person who wants to know everything all the time. And yeah. she's the rare, the rare actor who wants to, wants to look at the monitor and watch playback and see her, her yeah. take. And it really helps her. She can be very objective about her own performance immediately after she's done it, which um, a lot of, a lot of actors can't be. But yeah. for, like, once you've worked, worked with an actor for like a couple of hours, you can sort of see, what they need and how they work. And they're all very, very, very different. So you direct all actors very differently. Um, and what was, um, what was Diane Weist like? Just, just because I, 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 
loved her performance in this. I, I thought that moment where she goes, oh, you're in trouble now. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly one of my favourite moments in the film. And I just, um, well, I had two questions really, what, what she was like to work with, but also I wondered as a, as a writer-director, how much your how much did your script shift in the editing process and what was that process like for you? Um, did you do you find it easier to let stuff go because you've written it and and that's the script is over there and this is the film now or you know because you have this kind of dual antagonism in the middle of the film between Diane's character and Peter's character and then he kind of takes over and she slightly steps back. Mm. Did you have more material there and and decide to wait it that way or was it always written that way? Uh, no, it was always written that way. I mean, the script was mostly. I mean, there was more of it. I mean, cut yeah. stuff out. Uh, but it was mostly she once she gets parked in sort of the mental asylum, then she sort of disappeared from the script, really. <clears throat> um, and you know, if I knew we were going to get Diane, I may have written more, you know, what I mean? <laughs> because Diane was so good. But again, if we'd written Di- written more, I mean, we may not have got Diane because she was there for a very yeah. short window. Um, right. And so you know, working with Diane was great because you know I grew up watching her movies you know I you know she's she was in like she's basically all the way through the 80s she was like the mother in every single good movie that I watched like Edward Scissorhands and and then she's in all the Woody Allen movies she was like and she has this mostly maybe not in Bullets Over Broadway um but she has this sort of like gentleness and this sort of fragility to her I mean she's got an inner strength but she's kind of got this gentleness to her so casting her as Jennifer, who comes across as very sort of meek and gentle, but, you know, in control. She's not ill and she's not frail, but she's sort of in control. And then bringing out this sort of, this, I don't know, this danger that's within that I've never seen from Diane. So the idea of having Diane do that was was great, you know. And Diane, um, Diane's very instinctive. You know, she reacts to the moment. So she will she will go off the script and she'll and you know and, and that will throw and it was great because Rosamond had to then sort of try and navigate her back to the scripts and because Rosamond was trying to get control of those scenes as a character that Diane like there's a bit where Diane just starts laughing where she goes you know I, and she just starts laughing that wasn't in the script that she starts laughing just Diane was like you know you know laughing laughing at Rosamond and Rosamond was like why are you laughing at me I've got to take you away and that that was great because she did a lot of unexpected stuff but she was always, you know, if she thought there's like she would add lip quite a lot, which I, I thought was great. That when we were like, there's a line in one of the scenes where she says, um, "Oh, you're a robber," and Marla goes, "No, I'm your guardian," and that's not scripted. And then she goes, "Oh, you're my guardian robber." Ooh, and that's all Diane. That's none of that. None of that was written. So, oh. so she, and then that scene, like you know, we had 25 different versions of that scene because Diane was trying to pretend like she was on like these drugs that was like spacing her out. So she was behaving as if she was on like spaced out drugs as we were shooting it and so she would go places and come back and you know and you're watching it and you're thinking I think I think we have the scene it's great it's, all this stuff is great um but it's a brilliant then, scene it's a brilliant scene what you think oh, I love it but but then 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 because I've got to keep my head, head in the edit a lot that you yeah. you then come in and say I just need these a couple of moments and like can we keep these ones smaller because you need to have the power yeah like, I know you're big's fun but sometimes we need to have the power and and then she'd be like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's great. And then she'd do it. And then she'd like, you know, she'd totally nail it. And great thing about all the actors we had, because we had very little time. It was, a, you know, it's a deceptively small budget film. And we shot in 32 days, the whole thing. So. Oh, my God. Congratulations. The number Thank of locations you. alone. Yeah, I think we had something like 45, 45 different actual physical locations in 32 days. Um, we, still, we and then we had some. We had three days in the tank for the underwater stuff. After that, in London, um, 
Can I ask about your heads of departments? Um, because it, 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 I really felt that there was, you know, what, what was the phrase we always use? Singing from the same hymn book. They, mm. they seem to understand, and obviously this is coming from you and the script and your guidance from it, but from the cinematography, the music, which I absolutely loved and I, I know is a particular um, mm. favourite of yours, but just the, in, in, in the way the palette was used, you know, by the time you got to those kind of incredible primaries when she's at the gas station, which was one of my favourite sequences, and you had that blue, red, yellow moments, and you'd started to creep the primary in. It starts in this lovely tertiary, and then you get these kind of hot bits of red, and then that blue starts to come in, and you it makes it, it gives you this tension, which was great. Yeah. Are, are they collaborators that you'd worked with before, or were they all new to you, or was it a mix? Um, for the actual shoot, they were all new to me. I mean, the people I worked with wow. before was, was the editor. I worked with Mark Eckersley, the editor, on Alice Creed and Gunpowder, and Mark Cannon, who did yeah. music, did Alice Creed as well. Uh, and then some other people, other people in posts, like, you know, Matt, Matt Curtis, who did the titles, who does everybody's titles. Uh, he's fantastic, yeah. the titles and the graphics in this. So it was great to work with some more collabor collaborators again who I really wanted to work with um, after not working with them for a while. But uh, no, unfortunately, like, uh, I... The I was I grew up with new people when I was when I was over there. The um, the uh, the cinematographer Doug he he'd made a film called Sorry to Bother You, the Boots Riley yeah. directed film, and I really loved his use of color in that. And I really I really wanted this to be a colorful film. And my lookbook was all sort of like nineteen sixties color God you know, Godard films like Weekend and Le Mepri yeah. and um all like all mode of our films. Um, yeah. The big pops of red from like, there's a shot there's a shot where she's like looking. Rosman's looking at the wall in a red dress, which to me always felt a bit like a normal mode of our yeah. sort of reference. Um, but about my mother, a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown, was the kind of the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the big pops of a like the, the strength of a red dress, like armor, you know. Um, so I think the the, uh, the the color is something that I very very early on I wanted to do. I mean, I love color in movies, and you can see like from like posters on my wall, like you know. I love that sort of 1950s sort of Technicolor and Eastman color sort of look and the way that they use those bold pops of, of color. And um, so we had this big, big lookbook and it was, then it was just say, you know, trying to urge them to do as much as possible with the color. Cause everybody's like, Oh, you want color, but we don't want it to, to be too much. You know, we don't, we don't want it to be, sometimes there's a resistance of, yeah. of being quite bold. Whereas, whereas Doug, to be, to be, to be fair, he was always like, no, let's put as many, let's have these colored lights everywhere. It'd be great. Like in the gas station, there's a big pink colored light for no reason. Yeah. And it looks great. Um, and then then we had to all get get each other together. So Doug and then Michael Gracely, who was uh, the production designer, who did a fantastic job because it was none of it was studio, it was all locations. So we were dressing locations and finding those locations. Um, he did an amazing job. He, he recently did Euphoria and Assassination yeah. Nation and Malcolm and Marie for yeah. Sam Levinson. And then um and then Deb Newell, who's the costume designer. Because I love the costumes. If you're doing pops of color, they need to be pops. You can't have like four, like you say, you get to the gas station and everybody went to town. That's where it kind of all the all, everybody came in. But a lot of that gas station was just that. It was a yellow and blue gas station. And it, you know, and like on the days, like they I'd, I'd written in the hot dog thing that she leans on to heat herself up. I and they dressed it. in like the, the ketchup and the mustard to the side. And it's like, no, put them in the front of frame. You know, she's wearing red, she's wearing red and yellow. We've got these red and yellow mustard, we've got these, the neon was just there. I mean, a lot of it was just mm. We, it was already there and we were just using what we were finding because we couldn't afford to build a whole, you know, we would just turn up on the day and modify it because we didn't have enough money to build things. It, so, not, it just doesn't look like that. It looks <laughs> absolutely pre-planned, built. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's because we spent a lot of time in a van. 
yeah. going around looking at things and having lots of conversations like Michael you know there's lots of weekends where Michael Gracely and I would because we were both there in like just outside Boston so we would like meet up and talk and he'd draw pictures and I'd get we get photos and he'd ring me up and say I'm watching I'm watching like the there's a film right now turn it on your hotel tv what, watching the you know and we'd say look at the yellow in the background of that that really works and then you know but you had we got we got everybody together and we decided scene by scene who would have the color so like yeah. marla's office is like we would give marla the pop of color and then we'll have some flowers and some green over there yeah. and then we'd say like you know but in you know in the court courtroom which is like this very 1970s paranoid thriller courtroom that we shot in um was a real courtroom it was like was a, it's kind of a disused room in a courthouse that we we didn't dress at all really. I think we put some blinds on and we brought those chairs in but you know it was just trying to add the little bit that made it very distinctive and, se and seem um a little bit heightened to match the tone but also not feel like a thriller not to feel, make it feel like a gangster thriller like desatting everything or making it very blue and steely or make it brown and grungy I really wanted to do this thing just like Marla is underestimated because she's a woman throughout the whole thing that I wanted to almost feel like you were having these terrible people living in a Doris Day 1950s Rock Hudson comedy. Um, like that scene with Chris Messina and her feels like it, and it's almost shot a bit like a like Doris Day Rock Hudson it's, scene. But it's like they're talking about killing each other. And I thought that there was something really delicious about that. And that you just sort of, as you say, it makes you feel sort of queasy. It's like, what is this movie? What am I, what am I, what am I going to care about? And I, but like, it's different, you know. Well, there was a kind of outrageousness to the to the explosions of color which i absolutely loved and i thought it spoke to thematically what you were doing it was really brilliant do you think you would mind talking a little bit because it, it's incredibly impressive the underwater sequence and now understanding the kind of budget and limitations you were on how did you pull that off and <laughs> would, you know like were you i'm guessing you were in a tank for the majority of it, or can you just talk us through a little yeah. bit? I mean, we obviously we shot the exteriors in um, in Massachusetts when we were over there. So there was a, a private quarry, flooded quarry. So that was where we actually threw the car in. That's where Rosamund swims the side and gets out. And then we when we storyboarded, I didn't storyboard anything apart from that section in the movie because we just didn't know where we were going to shoot. So we'd have to just sort of make it up on the day. But that was very important to storyboard. Um, and so like all the stuff where she's going through the undergrowth and those shots of like the stunt driver with the camera on the car and things coming past camera, they were all just picked up. There's no second unit. So they were just picked up on various locations where we were shooting. Right. It's like, you know, we'll lose a camera for like half an hour and get, get the car zipping through some undergrowth that we'll set up. And so we just, um, and on the last day of filming, there was like a little bit of green screen work, um, you know, in a car park to get some of Rosamond stuff. So it was all of it was like really grabbed apart from, when we actually got, we finished the, uh, the Massachusetts filming and then we came back to um, to London and we were lucky enough to, to shoot on the the underwater stage in Pinewood. So, because uh, we were going to build a, because there was no underwater stage in, in Boston. So yeah. we kind of, we priced out how, because often if there's no stage, they will build a pool and build a rig around the pool. And then you have to bring everybody in and pay them to come and stay in town. And you can get them from like, there's like one in Mexico we could have got. And there's one somewhere, you know, one in California could have come. By the time we priced it out to do it in Boston, it just was it was cheaper to do it in Pinewood. Yeah. Um, and because Rosamond lived in London and I lived in London, it's like, well, we're going home anyway. You don't have to fly anybody anywhere. Just yeah. fly us home and we'll just we'll just sort of farm it out to um, the people who run that that stage. And they'll be absolute pros and have done it a thousand times before. And, there's, you know, safety will be perfect. Whereas like trying to build it in a car park and fill it up and it's like I was just worried from and shooting at night because it would be exterior we'd have to do it we'd have to actually do it at night whereas 
and on a tank, you can just turn the lights off and you're in a stage. So we work with Mike Valentine, who shoots all the underwater stuff for everything. Yeah. <laughs> in uh, and we just we just went through knocking off the storyboards, really. Rosamond had never been scuba diving before in her life. So she went and did a training day. Wow. Um, and then I went in and we talked about what I wanted to do. And we just one by one knocked them off. And like Rosamond, um, as you can imagine, if shooting this in such a short amount of time, she was an absolute trooper. She was like fearless, would do anything. Like, you know, she gets shoved in the back of a trunk of a car. She gets a plastic bag over her head. She's sort of manhandled everywhere. And she's she has to do all sorts of things. She does all her own driving in, in the show, you know. Uh, she's in like this quarry and popping up in the middle of this quarry and swimming to the edge. Uh, and so she was just like, you know, what do you want me to do? It's like, well, we're going to get in the car. We're going to sink the car. And she's like, all right. And so she just got on with it. And uh, and by the end of it, it, you know, we got quite a lot of footage that we could use. I mean, we used pretty much every single Frame. moment of it. I mean, you know, there's a lot, the, the way that's edited is very well done by Mark as well, that it's cut. We we show little snippets with blacks in between. Yeah, I love that. Which like really amps up the pressure. Because like when we cut it together in, um, in sequence, in order, in continuity, it either either it felt like it was it was too easy to get out or she was just underwater for like seven minutes you know and it didn't feel realistic so you just needed to show these sort of like bang 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 moments um and like mark's solution mark Eckersley's solution to that was like so so well realized and then mark cannon's music adds this level of sort of tension on top of it which makes the whole thing unbearable but it all comes down to like rosamond you know in these like 12 seconds she gets when she takes the air out takes a mask off and then she's she can't breathe and she can't get out of the car. So she's totally trusting in the crew around her. And then she's sort of struggling and because you can't tell if she, she's pretending to drown, right? So you can't tell if she's really in trouble or not. So you're just watching the monitor and hoping that she's fine that she'll just go like that and they'll put this thing in and she'll look, look towards, vaguely towards the camera like, like that at me. And I'm like, yeah, you know? So it was, um, it was terrifying because that, that those cars sink quick and then the water goes up and it's just like up over her face and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's by this point, it's like a friend of yours in the water, you know, you worry about them and you're responsible for them. And it's always the same with stunts, you know, you, you, you just have to be as careful as possible because it's only a movie. It's not that important. It's not as important as, you know, injuring people, or you know, risking anybody's anything. So uh, just making sure everybody was safe, but then Rosamond was happy to do it. And Rosamond was, you know, if, if, if she needed more time for anything, then, she got more time and then we like mm -hmm. if that means we lose a shot then we lose a shot it doesn't matter you know it's yeah. it's, it's, a, it's more about the quality of the bits you get for me i mean i learned yeah. this early on from like zero budget stuff it's like if you can get like 12 great setups in a day it's better than getting like 32 mediocre setups you know someone who's but as someone who's 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 kind of had the, the big uh experience and this more lower budget experience what's your is there a preference for you or i mean i know things that are pros and cons but it sounds like you've had you had a lot of creative control on this which I think is always you know one yeah of goals as the director but I mean this was extremely tough to to get made like just physically tough to get made um because I had a very very high level of ambition for the amount of time and money that we had yeah. um but then again the fifth wave was incredibly hard to get made you never have enough money you never have enough time um creatively this was a much much more rewarding experience in the fifth wave because as you say I did have a lot more control and it was like you know Teddy was extremely supportive Black Bear was extremely supportive of the whole thing that you you know anytime that you know we would have like a, a disagreement on something like a piece of casting or like a piece of design and he was like are you sure are you sure that just feels like it's not quite right and I was like no I, I'm sure it's right and he'd be like well it's your movie if you're sure let's go with it you know so he was he was a great partner in like challenging me of saying 
I just want to put this devil's advocate point of view. But if I if I fought for it and I and I was like, no, it's really important. He would he would be very supportive of it, and he's been like that all the way through the edit and all the way through the music and everything. So you know, and it's a very it's a very odd film. It's quite a bold and distinctive film, and so I think a lot of people could have got cold feet because what often happens is when you start making a film, everyone's excited about it, but as you get into it, people start getting more and more worried that they're yeah. going to start losing their money. And so there's like a push towards the middle, a push towards broadness. Yeah. Um, and, you know... Not offending um, an audience or not not putting people off or going for the widest common denominator. And you can... And just being, and just being familiar, just being as familiar yeah. as possible so people are comfortable in it rather than a bit, as you say, a bit queasy. Yeah. Um, and so... And so that that didn't really happen on this one, which is great. And you know that necessarily happens on a big budget Hollywood movie, especially one that I haven't written. Um, and you have that hierarchy of a movie studio who are going to put this in every you know put a film in every single cinema in the world. Uh, and you know, I mean, the fifth fifth wave is like, I'm, it's not it's not you know, it's not the film I really wanted to make, but it you know it's probably my most widely viewed film. It was you know it made like over a hundred million dollars worldwide, and yeah. you know that's I, you know that's a lot of films don't do that. That costs a lot more than the fifth wave did. So yeah. it sort of it didn't it didn't sort of like it wasn't a flop and it didn't really hurt me for that reason. But it just creatively it just didn't you know it just didn't feel much like me. I think yeah. if you watch Alice Creed and you and you watch, uh, you I watch care a lot. Yeah, if you see them. They're bookends for each other. I think. Yeah, they very they they have a lot in common. They have a lot of me and a lot of the themes and the the visual style and the colors. I mean, Alice Creed's got a lot of reds and greens in it as well. You yeah. know. That it, it, they both very much feel like my my world, and I like playing in that world. So for me, you know, that's that's the thing. It doesn't really matter about budget. You know, if if something takes something takes eighty million dollars to make, then you need to go find somebody with eighty million dollars to help you make it. Uh, but the trick is, if you want control, don't write eighty million dollar movies unless you've already had a massive massive hit, and the studio needs something from you. Like if you know Chris Nolan can get away with it, Tarantino can get away with it because they're such big names and these big actors will come to them they can get yeah. DiCaprio and Pitt in the same movie so the yeah. studio's happy whereas you know um on this one I was coming off a film that Hollywood was feeling kind of a bit kind of shruggy about um they liked my first movie but then I made this kind of not particularly interesting and late in this late in the day YA, YA movie and which is proficiently done but wasn't yeah. wasn't wildly exciting anybody really um, so you just don't, don't have the heat. So you've got to make your own heat, which is why I went away and wrote something that I wanted to do and I was passionate about. So when it's hard, it's so much easier to do something and get through the hard parts of it, the tough aspects of it, if you're really sort of like you're driven and passionate about it yeah. um, and that you have like an authority and a control and a have your own skin in the game, really, you're invested in it emotionally than if you're just turning up every day and sort of doing a job, if you know what I mean. I'm going to go to some questions now. I've just seen right. one because it just is great. Just says, I just need to say that the film is freaking awesome. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and then, um, I think the thing that got me as a self-professed feminist was the level of dislike I felt towards Marla within the first 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> what felt uncomfortable to me was that I think I would somehow have hated a man in her position less because I think I would have felt less invested in her decency or the lack of it. That's very interesting. Mm. We really need women represented in all roles. It's right that we should get the opportunity to hate them as well as love them in film. Um, I would have loved to have seen a few more women in the cast, but wouldn't want to take away from this achievement. Huge congratulations. It's well, not a question, but it's a really nice piece of feedback. That's very nice. And I can speak to that a little bit because yeah, there's a quote, there's a quote from Aline Brush McKenna, who um, wrote The Devil Wears Prada and yes. um, My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And she, there's a quote I really like from her, 
which was she says that like in films like women don't get to be assholes yeah um and i felt like and, and i kind of took that like women don't get to be sort of like good fellows and they don't get to be the wolf of wall street and there's not that many roles like marla you know and yeah. Especially the ones that aren't femme fatale, who weren't like using their sexuality to get what they want. That seems to be like the go-to stereotype or archetype, I should say. Whereas Marla is just using sort of like fearlessness, ruthlessness, and her her brains. And so, like that's why I found because I know loads of really sort of ambitious and ruthless women, like in our industry. You know what I mean? And so, <laughs> and I don't see them reflected on screen that much. And so, I was really oh, fascinated by doing that. And it's nice that it's kind of uncomfortable to watch that you're sort of. It's challenging. Yeah, yeah. And well, I think it's- was it Asa who said Asa who said um, she called it Bonnie and Bonnie, which I thought was a brilliant explanation yeah. of well, well, particularly but, from her character's point of view, it was great. But with the casting, we, you know, there was a very definite push by me. And like like there's lots of roles that even just on the page are just called like the doctor, the policeman, the the jeweler, the hitman, or the I love assassin. The jeweler. Yeah. And and we and like every time it like you would assume it might be a man playing that role, like the detective, we were we were casting women every time. And most of the time, if we're casting a man, it's because that person's like an idiot. And so if you think of it, who's like who's either duped, easily duped by Marla, yeah. uh, or is just sort of like totally outplayed by her. So, you know, it's um, the, uh, so we were definitely trying, I mean, I've read that thing, that Gina Davis thing, where she says to screenwriters, if you're writing a crowd scene, write in the script, it's 50% women in the crowd, because you just don't, if it's not written on the page, people will just make the terrible assumption of like, oh, it should be a man casting everyone. You'll see like 20 sort of like people who seem to be like police officers. And it's like, well, can we see some women for this role? And they're like, oh, you didn't say you wanted a woman. It's like, but it just says police, police officer, police detective. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't say anything else. It just says police detective. And so there is an assumption, the, the wrong assumption that it's like everybody thinks of like, the male character first whereas and even in crowd scenes so I think as a writer I try and write in sometimes or leave it completely ambiguous so we can cast um either gender in, in each role I, I really didn't notice that in the smaller roles particularly the jeweler and the and the police one what was great about her is also the little joke about Frank at the yeah end. I just because I was thinking why is she giving them so much information oh I see because she's in there in a circle yeah um uh, a question that I think is a lovely question. What was the most satisfying sequence that you directed in the film and why? Can you pick one? Um, I think my, the most fun, the one that I can still watch over and over and over again and enjoy, and the one that was always fun to edit and is always was really, really fun to shoot, was the the dialogue between um, Chris Messina and, and yeah. Rosalind in the office. Uh, because, you know, we shot, I think we shot three scenes that day, including that scene. So we shot like, 10, 10, 11 pages that day, um, which is quite a lot yeah. <laughs> for oh. a feature. Uh, but it was all in one location, which was great because we were it was one of the very few days we went bouncing around. And Chris came in that, you know, I met Chris that morning. I'd seen, I talked to him like this on, on the computer. We came in that morning and he was just absolutely word perfect. And, you know, he'd done sort of, he'd done stalking before. So he'd done newsrooms. So he knew how to talk lots of words fast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was word perfect on it. Uh, and he just had such a sort of like he just knew what he wanted to do, and and like Rosamond and him were just so enjoying it. And just especially when you've written it, when you sit by the monitor and sort of watch a scene like that come to life, it's just it's just pure joy. You know, you think, oh, this, you know, it's like it's like being a kid in a sweet shop. It's uh, it's great. I'm sorry, I'm not my. Kids. And also, his choices were just brilliant. The way he smiled, the way he thought about it, he was yeah. worried for her, trying yeah. for an indication. It was very funny. I, I, I love. 
Yeah, he was great in it. And like even his wardrobe, he had a lot of input into. He said what he like that those ridiculous suits he's wearing. He, he was like saying, I want to push it further. And like, you know, and um, you know, De you know, Dead Costumes, I think initially was a little bit, is this a bit too far? And then I was like, no, 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 we can go for it. And then so like he has these like ridiculous little tie chains and purple. By the time he was in the courtroom and he had the three pieces of white with the kind of violet stripe. Yeah, it's like <laughs> You really get a lot from that. From he's just playing a role too as a character. He's giving you a lot of information about who he is. I thought he was. I think he was brilliant casting, and also it was nice because you you're suddenly upping the ante. She's been very in control of the dynamic with nearly mm -hmm. everybody, and then suddenly she's got a proper foe. And and behind him will be Peter Dinklage's character. You know, yeah, which, and what you see is rather than her being scared, it's her going, "Oh, okay, game on." You know what I mean? Yeah. And she's enjoying it. And I think as a I think that's the scene where up until there, you're not quite sure what to root for and what you want. Yeah. And then when you're in that scene, it's like, oh, I can laugh at this and I can enjoy this. And it's sort of, I think you can enjoy up until there, but it's like, you're not quite sure. And there's that scene. And then the scene with Diane, that's like two scenes after that, yeah. that you're like, oh, I know what this movie is. And yeah. like you settle down into it. And then it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's more fun from there on in. And like that point in the edit was quite interesting of where we had that land. And we had a bit more in the first act. Um, and in fact, we had a whole other character that we cut from the movie, but uh, okay. that, that we had we had that in the first. They had a whole other character that appeared in the first first act quite a lot, and we found we just didn't need at all, um, which is a shame because like you, they were really good, really good actor, but they but that just sort of shortened it down and got you to got you through that first bit so much quicker. And that, I think in the edit, that was sort of the biggest decision that we made was just trying to get trying to get like Diane into the care home as as soon as possible. Yeah, because then you start to see the turn and it's just, yeah, that was one of my other favourite scenes too. Yeah. Um, uh, someone's asking just were there any particular influences for such a, a dark and complex female character? Did you, I mean, you, you seem to be making a, a really great statement about the state of the world with the title of the film and with the way in which you're entering it. Did you always want it to be a, a female character, and did you always did you kind of was Marla the first thing that came to you, or the situation? Uh, well, it's hard to know where ideas come from, you know. But I did read these news stories about these guardians, yeah. and it felt that there was something disarming about them because, I mean, it was horrible. These are horrible, horrible stories. But there's something about there's like the nurturing, the cliche of a woman is like the nurturing, caring person. Yeah. So if you're in a courtroom with like Macon Blair's character and Marla's character is like, well, who can care better for somebody? It's, well, it's probably the woman rather than the beardy man who can't get dressed properly. And, you know, so there's, who's been in a fight at a care home, you know, so there's there's a thing about weaponizing the thing that you're being sort of stereotyped as. And so yeah. that that's felt very interesting to me. And so then I've always wanted to make a film about ambition and about an ambitious woman because I felt like that was something that was I'd, I'd like to see and I, I, I basically make movies I want to see so I hadn't seen that film and I'd like to see that film and so the closest we got to it recently was like I, Tonya or something yeah. like that like I really I really yeah, there's something about that that I loved and um, so that was you know that the, the, the sort of the idea came with those two things coming together and it just sort of festered for a while before it turned into turned into anything but it was um, uh, it was that I don't know if I answered the question particularly <laughs> it was asked <laughs> brilliantly um here's another question which i think is really interesting well um it's been the question is what genre of film do you do you hope to direct next or perhaps what would you like your next project to be if you can talk about it uh i can't talk about the one i'm actually doing right now because i'm sort of secrecy but that's exciting and good that you're doing it's exciting and good yeah but I, I tend to i tend to sort of go towards sort of power dynamic 
whether yeah. what it doesn't matter what genre because like this one is cross genre you know and yeah. i never intended to write anything that was funny really it was just meant to be sort of satirical and sort of like probing at things that horrifies me in a way that wasn't like looking directly into the sun so it's more like something sideways at it um in the way that sort of like billy wilder or even like kubrick in dr strangelove if i can even be in the same sort of like universe as that but um I, I like all genre films, it's like watching films. I, I like watching, you know, I'm a big big fan of all all films. Uh so there's there's not really any genre I don't want to do because there's yeah. always there's always an opportunity there to use genre. I like using genre almost as a weapon against the view of like expectation and archetypes, and you expect it to be one thing and it's another thing. Cause I think that, you know, you have such a short amount of time to tell a story in a feature that using using the audience's expectations is really, really useful. Um oh, I've just realized that in the last question you asked about. Do we look to like other other films for female characters? Yeah. Um, and actually, Rosamond came here to watch some movies because we had some time in London before we went to Boston, uh, and we watched quite a lot of films. We watched like To Die For and The Last Seduction. Yep. Um, and we I watched To Die For. And uh, and Johnny Guitar. We watched. Yeah. Yep. Um, all about ambitious women, but like a lot of it was just trying to find a line of like how unlikable is. Can we push it before you you just don't actually care what happens next to somebody yeah that line of sort of delicious and horrible and there's a really sort of fine line so we were watching it more for that than sort of trying to trying to emulate but it's just interesting to see how other people have done it very good laura's going to come on i think and wrap up can i can i say thank you i mean you were just brilliant and open and again a huge congratulations um thank you very much thank you very very, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to come and ask me some questions and (laughs) it's been a lot of fun thank you everybody for watching who i can't see out there i know it's weird isn't it talking to this black i'm sure (laughs) they'll be all taking notes it was was full of great information thank you well thank you this podcast was recorded at a directors uk member event You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.